listening to the Retro Sermons Podcast. Find out more at NorthColumbusChristians.com slash Retro Sermons. I was told when I first got here that we would start filling up from the back and there, from there go to the front. And in the main, that's not being true. And I very much appreciate the fact that you're coming down to the front. It may be because you're afraid you can't hear me if you stay in the back. And I realize that I don't have the volume that Brother Maple and some of the rest of the folks you've been hearing have. So I appreciate even doubly so the fact that you're coming close enough to see me and to hear me as we study together. And I'd like to say with Brother Maple that I also appreciate the fact that you've come our way to study. If you're visiting the church here and you've come for the first time, or at least you're not regular with us, then what he said is certainly true not only from the standpoint of the people here, but me personally. We're trying to teach and to practice what's right. And... Uh, if I were to teach anything tonight that is not in harmony with the law of God, not only is it your oblig- uh, opportunity, but it actually is your duty to tell me wherein I do fall short, and having corrected me, then realize that we can stand together on the truth. I want to read to you from the third chapter of Ephesians, a little part of that chapter, to begin our study. Begin with chapter 3, verse 8, and going through verse 11. The Apostle Paul says, Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ, to the intent that now under the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have for about the past three evenings been attempting to emphasize the scriptures, to hold them forth before you in their proper light, to recognize them as divinely inspired, to appreciate many of the significant things that come from them. And of course our lesson tonight will actually be based upon what the Bible has to say. But I want to change my point of emphasis now, and I want us to think for tonight, tomorrow night, and the next night, with relation primarily to the part of the Bible that tells us about the church. In this passage we find affirmed the fact that the church is a part of God's eternal purpose and that it is to make known the manifold wisdom of God. And I realize that there is a function of the church that involves the teaching of the gospel, that is, as we go about to set forth the will of God. And yet actually that's not what the Apostle Paul is talking about here when he talks about the church making known the manifold wisdom of God. He's suggesting that the church as it is constituted by God, those things that have been given to us by inspiration to help us to organize and to help us to carry out the functions that God wants us to as a collective group, that these things actually will demonstrate the wisdom of the divine mind, that by the church is made known God's wisdom, that these beings can see that God is wise as he unfolds his wisdom in the setting up of the church and the way he has intended for it to operate. And I want you to consider with me tonight that just as the Bible has been given to us and it provides us with the will of God, the church also has been given to us and it provides for us the relationship that God intends for us to have. And actually, in keeping with the nature of God, recognizing the fact that God occupies the position that he does, it could be no less than he himself is. In Matthew chapter 6 or chapter 5 and verse 48, Christ says, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. And of course we recognize that fact. We appreciate that there is nothing that is lacking in God at all. 
that wherever there is something that is needed that God can supply. He has the power and he has the will. And no person that was not perfect in every detail would deserve our worship and our homage. God is that kind of a being. Therefore, I can safely assert that anything that God has anything to do with is going to be perfect. That is, that whatever God has destined to happen, whatever God has made plans concerning, that wherever God has put his finger into something, that whatever is going to happen is perfectly as God intended for it to be. And there's going to be no exception to that because God doesn't make mistakes. There is not in God's character the ability, commensurate with what he is, that would cause him to not do that which he sets out to do. He'll always accomplish his purposes. And so, as God is perfect, it'll be good for us to recognize the fact that everything that God has done for man is also perfect for the purpose that God intended for it to fulfill. Let me, just by way of introduction, point out to you the things that God has given to us. And let's see their perfection as revealed in the Word of God. First of all, let's recognize the Son of God. Let's appreciate the fact that he has been given to us by the Father as a Savior of our sins. In Luke chapter 19, Christ expressed his mission. And he said, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. And I unhesitatingly suggest the idea tonight that so far as Christ is concerned and for the purpose that God sent him for, that he is perfect. That he provides for us a sufficiency of salvation. That there is nothing that is needed for us to enjoy this blessing from God that is not fully provided for in Christ. And passage after passage in the New Testament teaches us that this is true. We're taught that God made the captain of our salvation perfect through suffering. And so in Hebrews 2, the idea is affirmed there that Christ is perfect, that he is a sufficient Savior and he's the captain of our salvation. In Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 9, we're told there that though Christ were a son, yet learned he obedience to the things that he suffered and being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey him. That passage teaches us that Christ is a sufficient Savior that he is perfect for the purpose that God has ordained that he should fulfill. In Hebrews, the seventh chapter, and beginning with about verse 25, the same thought is expressed, as the writer there tells us, of the difference between Christ's priesthood and the priesthood of those that came from Abraham. He says now in verse 25, Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily, as those high priests, to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity. And of course the implication is that Christ isn't this way. But the word of the oath which was since the law maketh the Son who is consecrated forevermore. That passage reaffirms the thought. That so far as the idea of Christ's function into the world, there is nothing that is lacking that he desires to supply. That he is a sufficient, a perfect, and all-providing Savior. In 1 John 2 and verse 2, John mentions here the scope of the thing that Christ is going to accomplish. In the first verse he said, My little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. But he says in verse 2, If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father even Jesus Christ the righteous, who is a propitiation for our sins. And he says, not for our sins only, but for the sins also of the whole world. Christ came to seek and to save the lost. And with that end in view, he provides a sufficiency of salvation. He has given to us all that is required to meet the demands that God has placed upon us, that we might enjoy this blessing that comes from God. So as God is perfect, 
and does everything that he does perfectly. So he has provided for us a perfect Savior, a sufficient salvation that is provided for in Christ. But that's not nearly all that God has involved himself with as it relates to man. God also has given to man a revelation. And certainly in keeping with the character of God himself, we affirm that the revelation that he's given to us is a perfect revelation. It is a sufficiency of information that we have to need that God has given to us. There is nothing that you can conceive of that relates to the mind of God that is required by man that has not been provided for. For his revelation is a perfect revelation. In John the 16th chapter, Christ promises his disciples. He said, How be it when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he'll guide you into all truth. That is, that everything that is true that man requires, God has given to him the instruction about. The Spirit came for that express purpose, to give to us all truth. And in 2 Timothy 3, the apostle affirms that the scripture that has been given by God's inspiration is profitable for the teaching that he requires that we have, and he said that it makes the man of God perfect, truly furnishes him to every good work. That suggests the thought that we have a sufficient revelation. There's nothing that we need to know that God hasn't given to us in the Bible. It's all there. And we might just, from this standpoint, affirm the fact that whatever man seeks to do that is not contained in the law of God, as revealed in the word of God, is that which is not good for man. God gave to man everything that man needs, gave to him a sufficiency of revelation, and has insisted that we confine ourselves to what's there. And every time that man goes outside the book, He's reached the state of thinking that is unhealthy, spiritually speaking, because God gave him what he needed. We have a sufficient revelation in the law of God. In 2 Peter 1, Peter says that God has given to us all things that pertain to life and to godliness. And he said that comes to the knowledge of him that hath called you to glory and to virtue. That is, by the knowledge of Christ, the knowledge that Christ has given to us, we have all things that pertain to life and to godliness. A sufficiency of revelation given to us contained within the Word of God. And, of course, that's necessary. Because in John 12 we're told that it's going to be that very same Word that will be before us at the judgment day to measure our lives. Christ said, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my Word has one that judges him. He says, The Word that I have spoken. And you know, that's the Word the Spirit came to reveal fully. That's the Word that makes us complete. That's the Word that pertains to life and the Godness. He says that this Word will judge him at the last day. So God gave to us a sufficiency of revelation to set forth before us the pattern of life we ought to follow by which we shall be judged at the judgment day. So just as God is perfect, he gave to us a perfect Savior. Just like he's perfect, he gave to us a perfect revelation. Now, there's nothing needed, either in the work that Christ has done or the revelation that he's left for us. But now our lesson tonight does not primarily deal with these two parts of God's work with man, but the idea of the relationship that God has provided for us that we might have a connection with him. And I affirm that since this has come from the same source, since it too is a part of God's plan for man, as suggested here, it's the way to make known his manifold wisdom. As suggested here, it's part of his eternal purpose, that he purposed in Christ. That just like God, when he gave us a Savior, gave us a sufficient Savior, and just like God, when he gave us a revelation, gave us all that we needed from the standpoint of revelation, also this same God, this same perfect being, when it came to the question of giving to man a proper relationship, has provided for him in the church, which is the only relationship I read anything about in the Word of God, that ties man to God, gave him a perfect relationship. Just as perfect as the revelation. Just as perfect 
as the Savior, just as perfect as God is. That's not to affirm that everything that the church does is perfect, because the church is made up of human beings, and human beings are not perfect. But so far as God's arrangement, so far as those things that God intends to happen in the church, so far as the function that the church is to fulfill, and so far as its connection with God, it's a perfect relationship. Now, there's nothing that you need to have so far as connecting yourself with God and so far as fulfilling the law of God that you'll not find in the church. It's a perfect relationship. It's the kind of relationship that could only come from a perfect being. And I'd just as soon be dissatisfied with the revelation that God gave me or be dissatisfied with the Savior that God gave me as to be dissatisfied with the relationship that God gave to me. They stand or they fall together and they're all just as good as the one that gave them to us. The Savior is just as good as the Father. The revelation is just as good as the Father. And the relationship is just that good. And when men begin to tamper with God's relationship, they're being just as disrespectful of the nature of God as they would be if they tried to tamper with the Savior. Or as they would be if they tried to tamper with the re revelation that God gave to us. God is perfect. And He gave us a perfect Savior. He gave us a perfect revelation. And he gave us a perfect relationship in the church. Of course, when we talk about the church, we're talking about individuals that have been brought together to have ties one with the other and also to have ties with God. Properly speaking, of course, the term church refers to a called-out group of individuals and suggests the thought of a relationship, the thought of that which is bound, bound us in one sense to God and in another sense to those Others who have accepted the same call. Now this passage here should be Second Thessalonians 2 and verse 14, which emphasizes the called out feature of our relationship, where Paul points out the fact that we have been called unto Christ by the gospel. We've answered this call and therefore become part of the ecclesia, or the called out. In other words, we enter the relationship that he speaks of here. We have now a connection with God, and it's a perfect connection. In Romans the 12th chapter, the first two verses, Paul, first of all, informs us that we should give our bodies a living sacrifice. And he said, Be not conformed to the world, in verse 2, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that we might be able to learn what is the holy and acceptable and perfect will of God. There's, we've been removed from the world in our actions. We have been translated into a proper relationship with God. And I'm suggesting for the remainder of our lesson that that is a perfect relationship, that the church is all-sufficient, for everything that God intended for the church to fulfill. That wherever God has spoken concerning the church, he's left nothing to chance. He's left nothing to human judgment. He's left nothing to my discretion, but he's given to us the perfection of all that the church needs to be what he wants it to be. And you can just put it down. Wherever God didn't say anything about the church, or about the work of the church, or about any other feature of the church, the church doesn't need that to make it perfect. And men had better not try to change what God has given with the idea in mind of making a better church, because God gave us just exactly what he wanted us to have. He's given to us an all-sufficient relationship. Now let's just see in what sense that the church is all-sufficient. Let's just see how this would occupy our thinking when we consider the perfection of the church. First of all, let's recognize this fact, and I'd call your attention all the way down to the bottom of the chart and suggest that the church is all-sufficient for salvation. It is a relationship wherein salvation is perfectly obtained in order for us to be pleasing in God's sight. 
In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3, we're told by the Apostle Paul that God has given to us all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. That is, that we have everything that we need to have in Christ. And I suggest to you now, as we consider the thought of the church as it obtains in this particular aspect of it, that for one to be in Christ is for one to be in the church. And let's just see if that's not so. I think that everybody would accept the thought that in Christ we do have all spiritual blessings. I know of no person who believes anything religiously who does not believe that we must, that is, from the standpoint of claiming to be a Christian, who does not believe that we must be in Christ to get the blessings that are in Christ. But when the Bible speaks of being in Christ, it's talking about being in the church of Christ. There's no way in the world you can separate that relationship, that is, of being in Christ, from the relationship that is suggested by being in the church of Christ, because they're one and the same. For example, let's see off this point. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 22, the Apostle Paul there tells us that God has put all things under Christ's feet and has given him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Now, if a person is going to be in Christ, then certainly he's going to be tied to Christ, who is the head. But friend, if you are tied to the head, which is Christ, you are of necessity forced to be a member of the body, which is the church. And you can't have a connection with the head without being part of the body. So therefore, when we think of the relationship, God has ordained our relationship to be in Christ, but the church is the body of Christ. And just like Christ is the head and the church is the body, and just like in our own human function we realize that for a member of the body to be alive, it has to be connected to the head, also in our spiritual relationship, in order for us to be connected to the head, we've got to be a part of the body, which is the church. And so we are a part of the body if we have salvation which is in Christ. The fact that the church is referred to as the body of Christ is one point which shows us that in this relationship we have the perfection of salvation that God gives to us. Another comparison. In Colossians 1, there the apostle tells us that God hath delivered us from the powers of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of our sins. Where? It's in the kingdom. But the kingdom is the church. Matthew 16, 18 and 19, Hebrews 12, 23 and 28 identifies the one with the other and suggests the thought that when one is in the kingdom of the Lord that he is in the church of the Lord. But it's here that we have redemption through his blood even the forgiveness of our sins. Friends, you can't be connected to the king or subject to the king without being a citizen in the kingdom and the kingdom is the church just as the king is Christ. And so in this connection we see the salvation that obtains as a perfect relationship being had in the kingdom which is the church being had in the body which is the church, tied to the head as a member of the body, subject to the king as a citizen in his kingdom. But another thought. In Hebrews chapter 12, the apostle there is suggesting a contrast between the relationship they had under the Mosaic dispensation and the relationship that we have in Christ. And he begins by suggesting in verse 18 that we are not come to certain things that were characteristic of Moses' law in the time when he revealed the Ten Commandment law. But he says in verse 23, he said, You are come to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven. That is, these individuals who constitute the church of the firstborn have their names written in heaven. Therefore, if one is of the firstborn, and therefore constituted a member of the church, his name is written in heaven. Now, how many of us believe that we'll ever get to God in an acceptable way unless we have our names written there? None of us do. But if we have our names written there, we're in the church because that's what it is. It's the place where those who have their names written in heaven are recognized by God. 
when our names are written in heaven, we're constituted members of the church. In Revelation chapter 20, we're told that if we don't have our names written there, we'll be cast into the lake of fire. That suggests the thought again that one who is in the church has the perfection of salvation provided in this relationship to God. But we'll go just one step further and suggest this thought, that the very same act that is required by God as an antecedent to our being accepted of him is the act which would, in one place in the Bible, is affirmed to give us salvation. At another place, is affirmed to put us into Christ. At another place, is said to come before one is added to the church. For example, in Mark chapter 16, verse 16, the Lord said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. That's what we're concerned about now, the idea of salvation. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Therefore, salvation comes when one is baptized, or at least after that act has taken place. Not only is that true, but it also says in the Word of God that one obtains a relationship with Christ by that very same act. Because in Galatians 3, Paul said we're all the children of God by faith in Christ. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So when one is baptized, he gains a relationship with Christ. He also is saved. These two things are said to be accomplished by the same act. But in Acts the second chapter, when those people there who recognized that they were lost sought an answer to the question as to what they must do, Peter told them to repent and be baptized, every one of them, in the name of Christ for the remission of sins, that is, for salvation. They that gladly received his word were baptized, and that same day there were added to them about 3,000 souls. Acts 2 and verse 41. Then verse 47 says that the Lord added to the church daily those that were being saved. That is, that when a person believed and obeyed the truth, that it, when he did that which God required of him, and baptism was a part of it, verse 38, that he was added to the church. And these facts altogether insist that this is obtained in the relationship that we're talking about. That is, that just like the head of the body controls the members and connects them to itself, just so we in the church are connected to Christ. Just like the king controls the citizens in his kingdom, and they must recognize him as king and be subjects in his kingdom, so we are in the church. And just as the church contains those who are enrolled in heaven, therefore suggest the idea that salvation is there, so we must obtain that relationship. Baptism, which saves us, puts us into Christ, also is the means by which we enter the church, or upon which act we are by God added to that relationship. And so I'm affirming tonight that the church is sufficient for salvation. That there is nothing that a person needs with respect to salvation that he can't get there. And of course, this would obtain another thought to us. That is that if a person is not there, he doesn't enjoy salvation. Salvation is in the kingdom. Salvation is in Christ. Enrollment in heaven comes because we are in the kingdom. And unless a person does have that relationship that is called the church, or that is, of course, constituted the church, he cannot expect salvation. But the church is sufficient in that particular point. That is, we have all that we need for salvation there. But that's not necessarily all that's involved in what the church is. That's not necessarily all that's suggested about the idea of the all-sufficiency of the church even though this is one point that we need to consider. Let's think about the rest of the things that God has ordained the church to have a part in. And I suggest to you, wherever the church has been touched by the divine hand of God, so far as giving to us the pattern for it, that it's perfect. Now, there's nothing that's needed that God hasn't given to us, so far as the idea of the pattern by which the church is to live. Let's think of other things. Let's consider the worship of the church. And I suggest to you that God has given to us in the worship of the church the perfect pattern for worship. There is nothing that God intends for man to do by way of worship in this relationship, this ecclesia, this called-out body that cannot be found in his word. And there is nothing that can be found in his word that we can leave out and be pleasing to him. He's given to us a perfect pattern for the worship he intends for us to 
uh, offer unto him, and it's found in the church. For example, in Acts 2 and verse 42, you find there the statement that those, and remember back in verse 41, they were added that day, about 3,000 souls. In verse 42 it says that so far as their practice was concerned, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, in breaking of bread, and in prayers. Therein suggests the thought of their continuation in worship. Who? The ecclesia, the church, worshiping as God intended for them to. And, of course, doing this by the sanction of God, doing this under the example of the apostles who were directed by the Spirit who guided them into all truth. What did they do? They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine or teaching, in fellowship, in breaking of bread, and in prayers. And in the confines of that one verse, we actually might say that we can find everything that God intended for us to do by way of worship. Because involved in the only act that is not specifically referred to here, the act of singing, there is the thought of teaching that is suggested. In Ephesians 5 and verse 19 and Colossians 3 and verse 16, we're taught that we are to teach and to admonish, to speak to ourselves in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing with grace in our hearts and making melody in our hearts unto the Lord. So these things are required of us by way of worship. Specifically, as we go to other passages in the Bible that bear out the same thought, we are to have teaching done and to be taught to teach ourselves in our worship to God. Acts 20 and verse 7. We find there that those disciples who came together on the first day of the week to break bread, which was one act of worship, were being taught by the apostle as he came to preach to them. And so they had teaching there along with the idea of the Lord's Supper, which is also referred to in 1 Corinthians 11. They had praying when they came together in 1 Corinthians 14 and an assembly of the church where they where Paul said, I will pray with the Spirit and the understanding. I will sing with the Spirit and the understanding. And also when they came together, they were required to give. On 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2, Paul said that they were to lay by in store as they had been prospered, each one, on the first day of the week. And we suggest then that these constitute the divine pattern for the worship of the church. And they are sufficient. There's nothing that God intended for me to do in worship to him that I can't find there. There's nothing that I can suggest that cannot be found there that God will accept. This is a sufficient pattern for my worship. That should forever settle the question as to what the church ought to do and should resolve the matter of whether we ought to have an instrument in our worship to make instrumental music as well as vocal music. God specified the vocal music. And since he's given to us a perfect revelation and all sufficient relationship when it comes to worship, then we don't need the instrumental music. In fact, we cannot have it because God gave to us what we needed. He has given to us those things that are required. And by leaving out other things has intimated that he's not pleased with them. Because the Bible is very clear in setting forth the idea that this perfect revelation must be strictly adhered to. That we can go neither too far or stop too short, but must accept what has been taught there. So I suggest that the church is perfect with its worship. That there is nothing that the church has the right to do that's not been given to us. That there's nothing that the church can do that is not revealed in the word of God. Anything else that we would set out to do is not approved of by God. The church in its relationship to God has the perfection of worship revealed in the word of God. Let's go to the next point here. And I suggest that just as the church is perfect in its worship, the church is also perfect in the name that it has been given to wear. I might just suggest now, with respect to the name of the church, that so far as I read my Bible, I do not find any one name that the church has been given to wear. Yet I do find that on many occasions God called the church or inspired men under the direction of God called the church by various terms. And I suggest to you that those terms when given to us by God constitute a sufficiency of terms that we have to use. 
That is, no matter what I call the church, as it comes from the Bible, I have a scripture right to do so. But as I think of other things that men call churches today, I realize there's no authority for that. God has given to us a sufficiency of terminology for us to use in referring to the church. For example, in Romans the 16th chapter, in verse 16, we're told there that the churches of Christ salute you, as Paul wrote to the church at Rome. Therefore, he refers to congregations as churches of Christ. Now, that's a scriptural name. Nothing wrong with that, because it's been revealed to us by God. It's that which God intends for churches to be called, because by inspiration the Apostle Paul called churches, churches of Christ. In 1 Corinthians, the first chapter, in the second verse, I found there that Paul wrote to the church of God, which is at Corinth. And certainly then that is identified as a scriptural term for the church. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 23, we read again a moment ago from the thought that it's called the church of the firstborn. Or the church of the firstborn ones referring to those that make up the church. And so we could call the church the church of the firstborn without any disapproval from God. He did it himself by inspiration. And you could find possibly other terms in the Bible referring to the church. But I suggest that that's as far as we can go. That is, that God has given us a sufficiency of terminology. And I have no right to create a sectarian uh, situation by calling the church by another name than that which has been given to me by God in order to separate from another group. By the way, that's what names do, you know. That's what they're used for. They're used by men to create denominations, to separate one so-called group of Christians from another so-called group of Christians. God gave to me the right to call the church by any and all of the things that has been called in the Word of God. But he's not given to me the right to call it by any name that has been suggested and is being used by men. They're used in the wrong way. And I might just make this observation too, brethren. Sometimes we can even use scriptural terms in an unscriptural way. We can even make the church a denomination by setting ourselves off and using one term and saying, this separates us from all others. Because God didn't make the church that way. He gave several terms that could be used to identify the church, and all of them are perfectly proper and can be used. But when you exhaust what the Scriptures have to say about calling the church, you've gone just as far as you can go. And we don't have the right to call the church by any other thing than that which has been given to us by God. From the individual standpoint, those that make up the church have been designated Christians by God. In Acts 11 and verse 26, they were called Christians first at Antioch. First Peter 4 and verse 16, Paul suggests the propriety of suffering under that name. Suffering as a Christian. And when we reach this, we reach the end of that particular proper name that the disciples of Christ were called by. I never find where they were called any certain kind of a Christian, where they were called by a denominational name, where they were referred to as Catholic Christian, as Methodist Christians or Baptist Christians. They were just called Christians. And certainly that ought to be enough for us. That's a sufficiency of terminology with respect to the individuals that make up the church of the Lord. That's the way God intended for it to be. Otherwise, he'd have given us something else. He's got a perfect revelation, perfect relationship, perfection in the name that we have the right to wear. But that's not all. As we think of the church in its function, and here now I'm going to be more specific, and consider the church from the standpoint of the group. And I suggest to you that God has given to us a sufficiency of the way that the church is to operate. First of all, let me mention one that is not even on my chart. Turning over to Ephesians, the fourth chapter. I suggest to you that the church has a sufficiency of the mission that it is fulfilled, revealed to it, in the Word of God. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul is suggesting the thing that the Spirit did when it operated directly upon those who received the gifts that are referred to in Ephesians 4, beginning with about verse 8. And in verse 12, he shows the reason for it. He said, These gifts were given for the perfecting of the saints, 
for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. These gifts were given, he says in verse 13, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That is, that the church was given the means to fulfill its mission. The mission is specified in verse 12. Spiritual gifts were needed at the outset of the church's existence that it might fulfill that mission till it received the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God contained in this perfect or sufficient revelation. When the revelation was completed, then the spiritual gifts ceased. But the mission of the church was carried on just as it was then by the direction of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's a sufficient mission for the church to fulfill. There is nothing that the church has the right to do except what's suggested there. Now, you think about that just a minute and see some of the implications of it. The church has the mission to perfect the saints, to edify the body of Christ, to perform the work of the ministry. And these compass the entirety of what the church has the right to do. This is the way the church functioned in New Testament times. That's all that it did. And it's a sufficient work. Why, if we just did that in the way that God intended for us to, that'd take up all of our time, that'd use up all of our money, that would engage our every talent when we just did what God told us to. That is, when we perfected the saints, when we edified the body of Christ, when we did the work of the ministry, this would fulfill all our time. And yet in our own day, brethren, do not even scruple to do things that are entirely outside the purview of what God has given the church as its mission to do. Oh, they think these are good works, all right. It's good to do these things, but you know, there are other things that we can do too. And churches in our day get way out into the social field. You read of churches all over the country engaging in such things that uh, are worldly and social as the idea of sponsoring Boy Scout troops, as the idea of fostering fellowship dinners, times of social recreation under the name of doing what God intended for the church to do. But God gave the church a sufficient mission. There's nothing that God intended for the church to do that's not contained in that mission. There's nothing the church has the right to do that is not specified there. If we do anything but what is taught there, then we're denying the sufficiency of the relationship God has revealed in his work. We're going too far, that's all. God gave to the church a specific mission. And I might feel like there are other things that are good to do. And possibly there are things that I might do under the requirement that God gave to me as an individual that's not contained in that mission. But when it comes to the question of the church, doing what God intended for the church to do as the church, then I must be bound by what the law of God has said. It's a sufficient work. And everything God has intended for the church to do is there. I don't see how that brethren can claim to believe the Bible. And you know, last night we discussed the idea that faith in the Bible indicates obedience to what it says. It involves the idea of accepting the requirement and complying with it. I don't see how brethren can claim to believe the Bible and then get the church involved in other things. Maybe get the parking lot and rent it during the week. Or maybe get money and buy an apartment building and rent that. Or maybe contribute their money to some other organization that's uh, neck deep in doing things that involve profit-taking and say that's the work of the church. The work of the church is to perfect the saints, is to edify the body, and is to do the work of the ministry. And that's all the work of the church is. These things involve teaching. These things involve the practice of benevolence, and of course the limitations set forth of other scriptures also apply. But that's all that they involve. And other things that might come in deny the sufficiency of the relationship that God has given with respect to his mission. Well, how carry out the mission that God gave the church? First of all, with respect to the money. And, of course, the church needs money. It always has needed funds to be able to function as God intended for it to. God gave to it certain requirements so far as fulfilling this need. And as far as I know, the 
acquiring of funds is limited to that which has been set forth in 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2, where the disciple or the apostle took one specific church and gave to it instruction, as he said, I've given to other churches in Galatia. He said, I'm giving you the same type of instruction, that when you come together on the first day of the week, you're to lay by in store, each one of them, that God has prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. This was to fulfill a need that the church there had from the standpoint of finances, that they might be able to do the work that they'd set out to do. So far as I know, that's all that God ever gave the church the right to do in raising money. Now, if you know of another way that the church can raise money, you ought to help me, because this is what I preach all over the country, that the only thing the church has the right to do with respect to raising money is to have its members contribute on the first day of the week as they've been prospered by God. That rules out you getting the parking lot and using it to collect money during the week. That rules out renting other buildings and using the money to further the work of Christ. That rules out your cakewalks and your pie suppers. That rules out your rummage sales and any other type of raising money. That limits you to doing what you're told in the Word of God. Just laying by in store on the first day of the week as God prospers you. And it says lay by in store on the first day of the week as God prospers you. God has insisted that this be done. Now, if there's the right to do it any other way, then, of course, we'll find it somewhere in the Word of God. I may just not have found the passage yet. But just as I believe that God is perfect, I believe that the Savior is perfect. I believe His revelation is perfect, and I believe His church is perfect. I believe this is a perfect relationship, and the way it gets money is perfect. There's nothing that we need to know about getting the money the church needs to do its work that can't be found there. And all that it says is just to lay by and store on the first day of the week. And all these other ideas that men have, brethren have, and they use to try to get the money by which they say the Lord needs to carry on His work through the church are things that have not been authorized by God. It's just a question of just where we recognize authority, realize that the church either is sufficient or it's not sufficient. I say it's sufficient in the way that it gets its funds, that it has the adequate means of getting the support that God intended for it to have in the direction to lay by and store on the first day of the week. Well, after it's got its money, how does it operate? What does it do and how does it go about doing this? The Lord, having given to us a perfect revelation and provided within the church a perfect relationship, certainly has not left us unaware of the type of organization that the church is to have as it carries out the work God intended for it to be. And I think that you can turn over to Philippians, the first chapter, the first verse, and you'll find the entirety of the organization that God has given for the church right there in that one verse. We're told there that Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. That is, there's a local congregation, the church at Philippi. It had saints there who were the members of the church. It had bishops and deacons, which in other places of the Bible, of course, are revealed to us as the overseers and the special servants that are working together and carrying forth the work that God intended for the church to do. Now, so far as I know, that's the extent of the organization under the head, which is Christ, that the church has been given by God. Just like God has given to us a sufficient Savior, just like he's given to us a sufficient revelation, then in the church there is a sufficient relationship from the standpoint of organization. But there's nothing else that's needed, friends, than local congregations with their bishops and their deacons. Now in Titus, the first chapter in verse 5, we're taught that a church that doesn't have elders is lacking. Paul sent Titus to Crete that he might set in order the things that were wanted or lacking, ordaining elders in every city. So the church needs that organization. It should not be long without it. Though when churches first were established in New Testament times, they functioned temporarily without such leadership, yet it was God's plan that they had it. Every church was to have elders. When they didn't have, something was lacking. But when they were 
appointed in every church, that's so far as I know at least, is all they ever had. Every congregation being given the leadership that God ordained that it should have. In Acts 14, when the Apostle Paul went back over his missionary tour, or the tour that he had taken to establish churches and came back over the same route, he ordained elders in every church. In 1 Peter 5, in the first few verses, Peter points out that these churches were to be overseen by elders that took the oversight of the flock of God, which was among them. While they were local officers, functioning in local churches. So as far as God has ordained the church, it has a local operation. This congregation is just as complete as it ever needs to be. And if we get any more involved with other churches than this church is, we become wrong. In God's order, the church was given an organization that was sufficient. We have no right to tie churches together. We have no right to cause several churches to get involved in a work under one direction, such as having one eldership to take the oversight of a work into which many churches pool their resources and begin to do things that God has ordained churches to do independent one of the other. God gave to us a sufficiency of organizations. And it carries forth in the way God intended for it to do. Sometimes brethren justify what we do, what's being done, by saying, well, local churches don't get the job done right. And I'm the first to admit that many times churches fail in their duty to God. But you don't correct the matter by setting forth an unscriptural arrangement any more than you can correct bad singing by putting a piano in here to help the singing out. I'd just as soon get a piano to help bad singing as I had to create another organization to help bad organization upon the part, a bad work upon the part of us, uh, those that try to fulfill God's order of organization. One is just as right as the other. I had just as soon flaunt God's law in one detail as I had to flaunt it in another detail. And if I believe, truly believe, that God has given to me a sufficient relationship, I'm not going to tamper with it. I'm going to do it just exactly like God intended for me to do it. I recognize that every church is independent of every other church. And every church does its own work. Every church functions as an independent unit from the other. God gave to us an independent organization, a sufficient organization, in the local churches to do the work he set out for them to do. Friends, just like we accept the Bible as being the totality of God's will to us with respect to salvation and every other thing he wants us to know, we ought to accept the church as God's sufficient relationship Recognize the fact that it's sufficient for salvation. Understand that it's sufficient in its worship. It's sufficient so far as the terminology God gave us to designate it by. And individuals have the proper term when they call themselves Christians and nothing else. It's sufficient from the standpoint of the mission that God has given to it. Sufficient from the standpoint of the means of support he's allotted for it. Sufficient from the standpoint of the organization that has been given. And these things have been designated by God. Now who of us are big enough? Who of us have the right to say that we can do something else. You wouldn't think of spurning this Savior for another Savior. You wouldn't think of turning to another revelation in preference to the Word of God. Why would you think of turning to another relationship for salvation? Why would you think of altering the worship God gave to this relationship? Why would you think of using another name but that which has been designated here? Using another means of support than that which He's been given us as an authority to do? Or even tampering with the organization He gave to this uh, relationship? Local churches. There's no way in the world we could justify altering any of these details. God specifies. We ought to make all things according to the pattern he's given to us in his word. And if we believe the Bible, that's exactly what we will do. If you're not a Christian, you need to begin by getting into the relationship. By occupying the proper place with respect to God. We'd like to encourage you to do that tonight. To accept God's will as it relates to you. 
If you believe that Christ has the right to be head over your operations, remember you're going to have to be a part of his body to be connected to the head. If you believe that Christ is the king, remember you're going to have to be in the kingdom to be a citizen and subject to it. If you find the need to have your name enrolled in heaven, as certainly the Bible teaches it is required, then you need to be with those others who are enrolled in heaven, part of the church. If you want to be in Christ, then do the thing that puts you into Christ. Be baptized into Christ where salvation is, and that will constitute you a member of this relationship. Then determine that you'll abide within God's laws concerning the relationship, that you'll worship as he's directed, that you'll be known only by the names that he's authorized and set forth in his word, that you'll give as you ought to give on the first day of the week that the church might be supported in his work, that you'll be satisfied with his order of organization, that you'll be content with doing only the things that God has ordained that the church should do. If you'll do these things faithfully, accepting and abiding within the sufficient revelation as setting forth the sufficient relationship, then we are assured that the word of God has given to us the right to hope for an eternal salvation. We'd like to encourage you to begin the road that leads to salvation by obeying the gospel. If you're already a child of God and you need to be restored to God's good fellowship, find yourself once again accepted off him because you've done something wrong and thus have lost the fellowship, let us encourage you to come back to God, to make confession of the things you've done that are wrong, to come back in the way God has appointed through penitent prayer, willingness to own up to your wrongs and turn away from them. This is his way. It's a sufficient way. If you are here tonight in any way subject to the invitation, needing to do what God requires of you and we can help you, then come forward and let us know why together we stand and why we sing.
say again that we're happy for your presence. We hope that you who are among our visitors will return again tomorrow evening and every, every opportunity that you have, not only during this meeting, but during our regular services, we extend to you a cordial invitation to attend every time you possibly can. Those of us who are members of this congregation need to be reminded again that there remain only four services, four sermons to be preached in this meeting, and it'll be history, the Lord willing. If you have not invited someone that you intended to, or having invited them and they haven't come, then do it again. Urge and encourage, and if they need transportation and you can't supply it, then let some of us know and we will. Do all that we can to bring them and expose them to the truth that's being ably presented from night to night by Brother Blue. I did not misrepresent the situation, buddy. The situation has just changed. These front seats were empty, and those back seats were filled. But tonight, the empty seats, most of them at least, are in the back. We're very happy indeed to see that situation. I don't intend to alarm any of you who didn't know about it and may have not locked your cars when you came in, but may I urge you, if you come tomorrow night, and we hope you will, that you lock your cars. One night, if I remember correctly, it was Monday night, several cars were pilfered. We learned today that it was not only floor mats that were taken. We knew only of Brother Mark's car and Brother Blue's car being robbed of their floor mats, not the... $2.98 type that are in my car, but good floor mats. But then today we found that uh, Arlie Snotty's car was uh, robbed likewise of its floor mats. And in addition to that, a fine set of tools, airplane tools, uh, upward of $100 any cost were taken. So don't know of anything we can do about it, but urge us to lock our cars the police have been notified. They've written up a report on it. And it may well be that since the whoever they were took the floor mats, added this expensive set of tools, it may be that they may be able to do a little more about it. But let's be safe and lock the doors. We hope you will be back tomorrow evening the remaining services of the meeting. Among our visitors, Brother Tooney Summers, who preaches for the church at Berea, and after we sing this verse of the song, we're going to ask him to lead our closing prayer.